The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. After the headlines, my special guest is the Academy Award-nominated filmmaker Evgeny Afinievsky. I interview Evgeny about his new feature documentary film, Francesco, which is about the Pope, and was released worldwide over the weekend. Here are some news headlines. Death toll in Myanmar's post-coup crackdown surpasses 300. Monitoring groups say 320 people have been killed as the military tries to suppress protests with many shot in the head. Unrest has gripped Myanmar. Peaceful pro-democracy street demonstrations and work stoppages have given way to paramilitary operations in opposition to the country's ruthless military, which seized the power in a coup on February 1st. The coup returned the country to fulfill rule after a short span of quasi-democracy that began in 2011, when the military, which had been in power since 1962, implemented parliamentary elections and other reforms. Republicans in Georgia on Thursday passed a far-reaching overhaul of the state's election laws that voting rights groups say will target black residents who make up roughly a third of the state's population. The 98-page measure that was signed into law on Thursday by Republican Governor Brian Kemp makes numerous changes to how elections are administered, including a new photo ID requirement for voting absentee by mail. Activists say that the Republicans have embarked on a national effort to suppress the vote at all costs, and not to avoid the obvious to suppress black votes because those ballots would not be cast to Republican advantage. More than 2.7 million people have died from the coronavirus around the globe. At a briefing Friday, the White House's COVID-19 response coordinator said that 71% of individuals 65 and older had received at least one vaccination dose and that by mid-April, about half of states will have opened up eligibility to all adults. However, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, warned that COVID cases in the United States have been rising. The most recent vaccination seven-day average is about 57,000 cases per day, which is an increase of 7% from the prior seven days. Hospitalizations, however, have also slightly increased, and the seven-day average of COVID-19 fatalities continues to hover at 1,000 deaths per day. Thank you for joining us. Today we will get a state of the pandemic update from Dr. Walensky, and Dr. Fauci will highlight the latest science. But first I want to start with the next national vaccination goal the President announced yesterday. 200 million shots by his 100th day in office. That's double the initial goal the President set in December of 100 million shots in the first 100 days. With 200 million shots in the first 100 days, 
more than half of all adult Americans will have gotten at least one shot by April 29th. No one even contemplated reaching this goal a few months ago. But it is now possible because of the aggressive actions we have taken to get more vaccine supply, more vaccinators in the field, and more places for people to get vaccinated. Overall, we've made significant progress toward our ultimate goal, getting Americans vaccinated as quickly, as efficiently, and as equitably as possible. As you can see on our weekly vaccination progress report, for the last two weeks, we are consistently vaccinating 2.5 million Americans per day. To hit our 200 million shot goal, we need to keep up this pace every day for the next five weeks. That is the equivalent of vaccinating a sellout crowd at Yankee Stadium 50 times a day or the entire population of the city of Houston in just one day. That's the scale of this effort each and every day. 200 million shots in 100 days. This is an unprecedented pace. No country has ever vaccinated this many people this fast. And this effort will coincide with us reaching into harder to reach communities all across the country to keep up this pace and ensure equity and fairness. We are making progress. As of today, 71% of individuals 65 and over have received at least one shot. That's important because seniors sadly account for 80% of COVID deaths. Overall, more than one in three adults have had at least one dose. And more than 47 million adult Americans are now fully vaccinated. We will need to continue to build on this progress to meet our new goal of 200 million shots in the first 100 days. And thanks to the resources of the American Rescue Plan, we have the resources to scale up activity, fully implement the strategy, and put the pandemic behind us. I want to briefly outline how, in order to reach our new goal, we will continue to increase vaccine supply, vaccinators, and places to get vaccinated. On vaccine supply, we've taken aggressive action to accelerate the production timelines of Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, including using the Defense Production Act to expedite critical supplies, equipment, and materials, and brokering the historic partnership between Merck and Johnson & Johnson. This week, a total of more than 27 million doses went to states, tribes, and territories and through the federal channels. That's more than three times the weekly supply that was being distributed when we took office, from 8.6 million doses to more than 27 million doses this week. This significant increase in supply means by the end of May, we will have enough vaccine for every adult in the U.S. To be clear, this is the direct result of all of our work with the vaccine manufacturers. It has produced results. They are setting and hitting targets. And we will continue to get all available vaccine supply out the door as soon as it's available. On vaccinators in the field, we've deployed over 6,500 federal personnel 
to serve as vaccinators and to support vaccinations, including calling on FEMA, retired doctors and nurses, and active duty military to administer shots. And in the coming weeks, at the President's direction, we will increase the 2,900 active duty military men and women in the field to over 6,000 active duty troops. On places to get vaccinated, we've dramatically increased the number of convenient and trusted places for people to get a shot. Today, across the country, there are nearly 50,000 sites where Americans can go to get a shot. This number of sites continues to grow and includes 16,000 local pharmacies in the federal pharmacy program that we launched a few weeks ago. Millions of Americans can now get a shot in their local pharmacy the exact same way they get their flu shot. We will increase the total number of participating pharmacies to more than 20,000. There are 300 community health centers providing vaccines, which we will expand up to 950 in the coming weeks. Importantly, over 65% of the shots administered at these community health centers have been to people of color. In addition to pharmacies and community health centers, there are over 650 federally supported community vaccination sites across the country. And we're also continuing to bring more federally run mass vaccination centers online, including three new sites we're announcing today in Boston, Massachusetts, Norfolk, Virginia, in Newark, New Jersey. Together, these three new sites are capable of administering 15,000 doses a day. And we're meeting people where they are, from deploying more than 500 mobile clinics to our new program to get vaccines directly to dialysis centers. Because of the progress we're making, states are following the President's call to open up eligibility to all adult Americans no later than May 1. As you can see from this map, 46 states and the District of Columbia have already announced plans to open up eligibility no later than May 1. That's the goal the President announced earlier this month. In navy blue, 14 states have already opened eligibility to all adults or will open eligibility in the next week. And in blue, in further good news, 12 additional states are opening up eligibility to all adults by April 15th. So in total, about half the states will have opened up eligibility to all adults by mid-April. The President's new goal of 200 million shots in his first 100 days is only possible because of the President's whole-of-government national strategy and our partnership with state, territorial, tribal, and local officials, vaccine manufacturers, federal workers, and the not-for-profit and private sectors. Before I hand it over to Dr. Walensky to talk about the state of the pandemic, let me close by saying it's clear there is a case for optimism, but there is not a case for relaxation. This is not the time to let down our guard. We need to follow the public health guidance. I want to give you a brief update on where we are in the pandemic. The most recent seven-day average is about 57,000 cases per day, which is an increase of 7% from the prior seven days.
The most recent seven-day average of new hospitalizations, about 4,700 per day, represents also a slight increase from the prior seven-day period. The seven-day average of deaths continues to hover at 1,000 deaths per day. I remain deeply concerned about this trajectory. We have seen cases and hospital admissions move from historic declines to stagnations to increases. And we know from prior surges that if we don't control things now, there is a real potential for the epidemic curve to soar again. Please take this moment very seriously. We're vaccinating at 2.5 million people a day and they are protected from COVID. If you haven't been vaccinated, your turn is likely very soon. We can turn this around, but it will take all of us working together. Please keep wearing your well-fitting mask and taking the public health actions now that we know can reverse these concerning trends. Thank you. I will now turn things over to Dr. Fauci. Thank you very much, Dr. Walensky. I'd like to spend the next few minutes introducing you to a new clinical trial that started yesterday that will ask a very, an answer, a very important question related to what people who are vaccinated can and cannot do. The trial, if I could have the first slide, will test if COVID-19 vaccine prevents infection as well as spread or transmission of SARS-CoV-2 among college students. Next slide. This is a question of extreme importance because we know when people are vaccinated that the endpoint of the trial showed that they were protected against clinically apparent disease. But the prevailing question is when these people get infected, how often is that? If they're asymptomatic, how much virus do they have in their nose? And do they transmit it to people who are their close contacts. Again, this will help inform science-based decisions about mask use and about social distancing post-vaccination. This is a randomized, open-label controlled study involving 12,000 college students between 18 and 26 years of age at more than 26, 20 universities shown on the slide of the map of the United States. They'd be followed over five months. And as I mentioned, the study started yesterday. Next slide. The students are gonna be randomized into two groups. 6,000 will receive vaccine immediately. And another 6,000 will be vaccinated with a delay of four months later. The delayed vaccination group will serve initially as a control cohort. Both of these groups are gonna receive the FDA authorized vaccine regimen of two 100 microgram doses of mRNA-1273, the Moderna product administered 28 days apart. Next slide. The participants are gonna complete questionnaires with an electronic diary app. They will swap their nose daily for SARS co-infection and provide periodic blood samples. Importantly, about 25,000 individuals will be identified by the participants in the main study as close contacts. They will provide samples. The degree of transmission from vaccinated individuals will be determined by the infection rate in the close contacts. So we hope that 
within the next five or so months, we'll be able to answer the very important question about whether vaccinated people get infected asymptomatically, and if they do, do they transmit the infection to others? I'll stop there and back to you, Jeff. Well, thank you, Dr. Fauci. Thank you, Dr. Walensky. Let's go ahead and open it up for a few questions. Great. And a reminder, uh, one question per person. First up, we'll go to Maureen Grappi at USA Today. Hi, um, thanks for taking my question. You mentioned um, the number of states that are opening up vaccine eligibility to all adults. Um, but some of those that are doing it the fastest, either this month or in the first week of April, are lagging behind when it comes to vaccinating their residents, including um, seniors, 65 plus. Um, I'm wondering if that is a mistake, if they should be focusing on that more first. And I know you said one question, but if I, a colleague asked me to ask about uh, Robert Redfield's comments um, this morning that he believes that the coronavirus escaped from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Let's start with the second question. Over to you, Dr. Fauci. Okay, so when you think about the possibilities of how this virus appeared in the human population, obviously there are a number of theories. The issue that would have someone think it's possible to have escaped from a lab would mean that it essentially entered the outside human population already well adapted to humans, suggesting that it was adapted in the lab. However, the alternative explanation, which most public health individuals go by, is that this virus was actually circulating in China, likely in Wuhan, for a month or more before they were clinically recognized at the end of December of 2019. If that were the case, the virus clearly could have adapted itself to a greater efficiency of transmissibility over that period of time up to and at the time it was recognized. So Dr. Redfield was mentioning that he was giving an opinion as to a possibility. But again, there are other alternatives, others that most people hold by. Azerbaijan's terrorist regime continues its destruction of everything Armenian. A week after it was revealed that a 200-year-old church in Shushi was destroyed after Azerbaijanis occupied the city, a BBC journalist investigated the destruction of another church, this time in Bekhakavan, formerly Jabrail, which was surrendered to Azerbaijan after the November 9th ceasefire agreement. BBC correspondent Jonah Fisher investigated the so-called disappearance of St. Mary's Church uh, in the city uh, since a video posted online clearly showed that the church was intact when the town was captured by Azerbaijani forces. This is a part of Azerbaijan's campaign of cultural genocide and to erase millennia's old Armenian heritage from Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about this recent push to uh, recall California Governor Gavin Newsom. One of the major criticisms of Governor Newsom is that uh, the laws and restrictions that he um, put in place after COVID-19 for the state uh, were too restrictive and it caused businesses um, to suffer and such. Now, I empathize with that and I think 
you know, no matter which way he'd gone, there would have been casualties. And that's unfortunate. But if we look at the alternate and have him uh, be a lot more loose and a lot more lax, I should say, about um, the way California conducted itself, what would have been the results then? How many more people would have died? I personally think that he chose the right path to save lives, and he did. Uh, 40 million people plus live in California, so he had to do the right thing and worry about people's lives and health first. The casualties are unfortunate. Either way, there was going to be casualties. And what if he'd been one of these lax uh, governors, these uh, puppets from the Trump era, like governor of Georgia or Florida, um, who just sort of, you know, just let anyone go anywhere, no mask mandated, anything like that. And <clears throat> what would the backlash would have been then? And could we have lived with that? So he's really paying for uh, doing the right thing and doing what's right for the largest number of people and keeping people healthy and listening to experts, that's health experts, and and that's that. Now, <clears throat> just to come clean, um, I, did, I did criticize Governor Newsom last year for just the, the way EDD was handled, or not handled, I should say, because um, I think it shouldn't have taken some people four, five, six months even to get their first check. And of course, the head of EDD eventually stepped down for mishandling that. So I'm not afraid to criticize uh, anyone, really. But Governor Newsom really did what was best for the state, for the people of California. But this is so much more than just COVID-19 or what happened in the last year. Democratic governors of California have been uh, targets all the time. Governor Gray Davis was intentionally uh, targeted, of course, with the fake electricity crisis that we later learned from taped phone conversations. That was uh, a way to weaken him and recall him, and they did that successfully. And, of course, California being a very dark blue state, uh, Republicans sort of want to find any sort of a way to insert, you know, <laughs> themselves or assert themselves also and uh, sort of weaken the, the Democratic stronghold in this state. Um, and it could also be that it's, they see this as sort of weakening potential future presidential candidate uh, being Governor Newsom and sort of let's um, weaken him now before he becomes a threat. So it's very transparent. I hope it is to other people, too, <clears throat> of what's happening. I'm glad that Governor Newsom is going to fight this um, aggressively. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's really a waste of uh, energy and waste of money for this to happen. <clears throat> With all the stress and everything on the governor's plate, um, I think even though he's made mistakes and he's done some miscalculations, for the most part, he's done a great job and this should not be happening. So uh, let's get blunt about 
the real true motivation behind uh, this recall. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Award-winning filmmaker Evgeny Afinyevsky built his career on demonstrating a commitment to documenting important stories of change and social justice. His film Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, was an official selection of the Venice and Telluride International Film Festivals. It was nominated for an Oscar and an Emmy and won the People's Choice Award for the Best Documentary from the Toronto International Film Festival. Afinievsky's documentary Cries from Syria, which came out in 2017, was about the brutal five-year civil war in Syria and was nominated for four Emmy Awards, earned a nomination for Best Documentary from the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards, and Afinievsky won International Documentary Association's Courage Under Fire Award and a Humanities Prize and Cinema for Peace Award as Most Valuable Documentary of the Year. His latest feature film, Francesco, is about the Pope and was just released worldwide and has already created a lot of buzz. The film addresses various issues facing the world today and answers many questions about the Pope. Good morning, Evgeny. Thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. How are you? I am good. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and uh, I'm so excited. Congrats on your film, Francesco. Thank you. I know that you've been, it's been a passion project. You've been working on it for several years now, so it's uh, finally here for U.S. audiences. It's actually available on a world scale already. Because since Sunday, it is running on Discovery Plus in many other countries, not only in the United States. So the audience across the globe can witness this amazing man and basically witnessing so much human gestures he's doing for us, for human beings. Absolutely. The, let me ask you this. Now that it's done and, you know, as I've sort of, you know, just for disclosure, you and I are friends, so I've known you. I've been working on this for years, going back and forth to Europe uh, many, many times. How does it feel for this sort of giving birth to your, this, this child, this artwork of yours? You know what? It's, it's amazing that I can finally share it with the audiences. It's a project of my passion that I... I dedicated three last years. It's over three years, actually. Right. And uh, I think it is amazing feeling that I can share it with the audiences, that the gestures that Francis is doing for this world can be shared with the audience, that audience can be inspired by these gestures to do good, specifically in these days of pandemic. But I think for me as the filmmaker, as somebody who created this call for action, it's still a lot of work to continue because the idea of this movie is to open wide open wide uh, kind of eyes for the people across the globe because since pandemic started we've been put it into our apartments we've been kind of put it into our caves and we were locked with our tv screens for entertainment but we forgot about what's happening beyond our countries we kind of we are paying attention to what's happening in our city, in our street, in our country. But we kind of forgot that there is a big world. And we also forgot about the disasters, except pandemic, that were surrounding us. And these disasters 
been created by us, by humankind. And we're talking about climate change to refugee and migration crisis. We're talking about war conflicts to genocides and holocausts. We are talking about all the abuse, sexual abuse and abuse of power. It's all us, human beings, who create it. And, and you, I think, yeah. Yeah, and you, you know, address all of those in, in the film. And I should say the Pope also addresses all of those topics in the film. In fact, I was... Uh, I, I guess surprise is not the right word, but maybe delighted to see that climate crisis and climate change and the catastrophe of it was the first thing that you tackle in the film. But I think climate change is the very pressing and hot subject for us in today's world. Because if people don't understand when we're talking about pro-life issue. Our life depends on the climate change. The more pollution we have, the more cancer and asthma we will have, and the more short life we will have to ourselves and to the future generation. So people don't understand it, that we created the genocide to the climate change. We created this genocide to the Mother Earth, to the planet. And at the end of the day, if we will not stop right now and rethink our actions and really not reverse the process of destroying our planet. We will not have this home where to live and we will disappear as a humankind. Because like I just mentioned, from scientific point, meaning pro-life is to care about every life. And if we destroying the life around us, we at the same time destroying our own life. Absolutely. It's affecting our own health, shortening our own lives. And we have also affecting the future generation that born with so many defects. So again, that's the starting point for everything. And then many other conflicts, many other issues that are created by humankind. Absolutely. Well said. For those of you just joining us, uh, this is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Victor Rami, and I'm speaking with filmmaker, director Evgeny Afyanevsky, whose film, uh, Francesco, just premiered worldwide about the Pope. Uh, so, Evgeny, I want to ask you about the process because it it, it always intrigues me. Uh, what was the process of making this film, like getting in touch with the Vatican and, and telling them who you are and what you're trying to do and all of that? How does that go? You're familiar with my previous movies. Of and course. you know these movies are effectively changed history. Like if you're talking about Winter on Fire, my Oscar-nominated movie, which inspired people in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Chile, in Hong Kong in 2019, to stand oh, against dictatorships, against oppression. Christ from Syria, which made people to open hearts and minds and understand what exactly happening in Syria, which atrocities. And for me, Syria was a journey into the darker side of humanity that I wanted to share with the entire world and explain why we are facing this crisis, refugee crisis. Right. So I think Vatican was aware of all these movies, not just aware of the movies, but also the impact they brought, right. the impact that I created by bringing spotlight on these things. And I think when I came to Vatican for the first time, they, knowing me as the filmmaker, as an artist, they agreed to open for me ability to start the project mm -hmm. on my own, independent, because I was uh, creating all my projects from Winter on Fire to Christ to this one 
starting completely independently with self-financing and nothing related to the studios. So they authorized me to start, green-lighted this, but they never promised me a meeting with Holy Father. Never. They said, start, we will see what you're doing, and then we will reevaluate and discuss. And that's how it started. And then as any journalist, any filmmaker, I started to do my own steps to build this relationship, to build this relationship step by step and to establish the contact with my main character. And it took some time and it took some really difficult moments to get to him. But it happened and I built this relationship. I built this fascinating relationship with Pope Francis, which I cherish. And that's allowed me to sit with him multiple times, to sit with him many times and in the same time to capture essence of his character wow that's that just sounds so <laughs> just so amazing that you got to interview him that's a lot of trust that you built with your credibility in your work so uh kudos on that i want to sort of switch gears a little bit and just to tell you so honestly when i was watching the film um for those that don't know uh, last night uh, I virtually was invited to sort of the L.A. premiere of, of Francesco, um, a virtual premiere, and I loved the film. And one of the things that happened was as I was watching it, uh, it kept, and you addressed this in the film, and you actually addressed it uh, during the panel discussion afterward, but listeners, you know, they didn't see it. So I'm going to ask you, as I was watching the film, uh, I kept thinking about the Pope's, for lack of a better term, flip-flopping on uh, acceptance of the LGBTQ community uh, through the years. Certainly this Pope has said more uh, and more positive things for and about the LGBTQ community than any other Pope uh, before him, but there have been some times when uh, we felt that we're getting inconsistent messages from the Vatican and, and the Pope most recently, he, him saying that he will not bless same-sex unions uh, because it's a sin. So um, I want you to sort of talk about that as that was discussed last night too. Uh, let me answer this question. He's a Pope and he's the human being. Now, the inconsistency comes from the institution that is over 2,000 years old. Now, Pope Francis not signed the documents that you're referring. He not signed it. He was aware of that the doctrine of faith, congregation of doctrine of faith, planning the response. He entrusted them to respond, but he not saw the final document, and his signature is not under this document, has been reported by media. Media reported he signed a decree. I saw this decree. There is no signature of the Pope. It is signed by the Cardinal, who is the Prefect of the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith. It's also stated that he was authorized, this Cardinal, to basically make this uh, thing. But did he been aware of the exactly content and language? No. And I know that because I have direct communication with Holy Father, mm-hmm. but that's even not the answer. The answer is, you can see in a movie, the testament, the actions, 
that he did to protect the kids of the gay couple. That's the testament. Yeah, you no, hear I... him on a camera he, when he is explaining his position. And as we already know, that when the movie premiered in October in Rome, it was a lot of misinformation also spread by the media because not many people had the chance to see the movie and media took advantage of that. So luckily mm -hmm. right now, the entire world can see and hear exactly what Pope said. Yeah. He's not trying to change the doctrine these days. He's trying to prevent any type of discrimination of any human mean, being. Now, do he ally, is he allied to the gay community? Yes, he is. And the biggest evidence is in the movie. Another evidence that I can tell you, Juan Carlos Cruz, whom you saw in the movie, yes. who explaining everything about himself and his sexuality, and in the same time, two days ago, breaking news. Juan Carlos Cruz been appointed to the Vatican Commission of Protection of Minors, and he's openly gay. Yeah. That's, and he appointed by Holy Father. Yeah. Another situation, me. I, because of the major pressure, I stated this already many times, uh, the pressure that media pushed on me, I openly said, yes, it is important subject and it is important subject for me personally, and mm -hmm. I am openly gay and I am openly Jew. And I still did this movie about fascinating person who calls Pope Francis. And that's another testament to his ability to protect us, gay community. So what media speculated in the last weeks was absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that media is wrong. Unfortunately, it was a speculations and a misrepresentation of the facts. Yeah, because well, he never signed this decree. It's a, it's a, it's lousy journalism if someone says a decree signed and it indeed was not. Um, I was just wondering because I don't remember who was it on the panel last night that said he just read it very quickly. He was in a rush. Father and, Martin, Father Martin said it. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, it was more of an issue of that he hadn't really fully comprehended what he was reading and responding to. No, he, I, I, he never signed this. I yeah. had a conversation with Holy Father. Yeah. He never signed this. Gotcha. And he never was even aware of this because all his focus last weeks was specifically the Iraq. And uh, he not was even paying attention. The recent pressure between the right wing of the church and uh, conservative side, which in my opinion, and again, I'm not a Catholic, but I'm observer from the side. And as observer from the side, I see how much discrepancy comes from the right wing of the Catholic Church, who calls themselves traditionals. But in the same time, if you are traditional Catholics, why should you not obey to the Pope who is representative of Jesus Christ on earth? The main rule and tradition of the Catholic Church is obedience to the Pope. And I somehow not see this from the Catholics who are calling themselves traditional. So, yeah. wait. Are we talking about uh, specifically saying one thing and doing another thing, or we truly need to follow tradition? So I suggest that they should follow their own tradition and yeah. stay on their own world. Yeah, you know, one of the similarities I see, and, and not to compare them, is when President Obama uh, came to, you know, you know, became president in early 2009, and there were so many different things that he needed to address one of them being a lot of discriminatory 
laws that have been enacted against the LGBT community. And of course, some of us activists, we, we wanted them done you know, quickly. And he said, no, we're going to do this the right way. We're going to do it slowly. We're going to get everyone's support behind it. Uh, he didn't just go in like a cowboy and just sort of uh, give executive orders. You know, it took two years for him to get all the generals and Congress behind getting rid of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And the next thing, you know, he started to work on the Defense of Marriage Act. And then, of course, it was during his pres presidency that we we have marriage equality. So I, I see what you're saying, and I see the Pope's position that, you know, he's trying to work with, you know, a huge institution, as you said, that's been around for uh, over a millennia. And uh, I think, you know, if we, the film speaks for itself, and I love that moment uh, with the Pope when he apologized to Juan Carlos and, uh, you know, and said, I'm sorry for everything that we've done. And I think it was a very genuine and uh, a real moment. But later on, you also see Pope standing in front of millions of people in a public space mm -hmm. and declaring these things, saying, I am sorry. I am sorry on behalf of the church. I am deeply sorry for all the abuses, abuse of the power, abuses sexual. And he doing this publicly and that's what makes him amazing human person yeah. and a fascinating leader yeah. and as you saw before apologized to juan carlos he apologized in a public letter that he committed mistake addressing to the bishops and it was read to the media so he is not afraid to admit mistakes and immediately fix them and that's what true leadership should be doing yeah not just blame others not to point fingers how many people are doing these days but to recognize wrongdoing recognize the mistakes mm -hmm. learn and then to make change necessary change and it mm -hmm. relates also to us humans because all the disasters that we're seeing in a movie related specifically to us recognizing them and then admitting the mistake and then fixing it either it's climate change or all the war conflicts or other issues or even genocides as you heard yesterday the recognition of armenian genocide should be done not because somebody demands this but because we need to prevent situations from repeating itself Absolutely. and until we're not recognizing our mistakes of the past we can't prevent the mistakes of today's world Absolutely. and in today's world genocides and uh, all the horrific situations are still continue ongoing and just because we're not accepting mistakes of the past absolutely hold hold that thought those of us just tuning in uh this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host victor rami and i am speaking with oscar nominated filmmaker, director Evgeny Avinievsky, whose film Francesco is uh, making a big, big impression on worldwide audiences, talking to Evgeny about Francesco and related matters about the Pope. So Evgeny, I, you, before this, you brought up the Armenian genocide, and I was so pleased um, that you included the Pope's visit to Armenia and to 
Tizernaga Bert, which is the Armenian Genocide Memorial in Yerevan, the capital, it was really important. I remember for the 1,700-year anniversary of Christianity in Armenia, the Pope John Paul II went to Armenia, and that was a big deal. Uh, but this pope uh, has definitely recognized the genocide over and over again. He grew up in Argentina, where there's a large um, Armenian community that are genocide survivors. Uh, so I really um, enjoyed that. Um, tell me uh, what led you to include that part. What led me to include that part? I will tell you. It's the first genocide of, 20, of uh, 20th century. And uh, I, it was important to include it because a Pope openly, despite all the consequences, recognized this and recognized this, like I just said, not because it is just important to please somebody. It's important to recognize this in the memory of the people who is no longer with us. And it's important to recognize this in order to avoid mistakes that we ask humans repeating over and over. And we just spoke that he, as the humble leader, and human being, he recognizing mistakes and immediately fixing them. And that's what we as human beings who creating all the disasters over and over and destroying ourselves, victimizing ourselves, we need to start to recognize our mistakes in order to prevent them from yeah. happening. And exactly the same thing was said in a movie that in order to stop all what's happening right now, we need to recognize this. We need to recognize that that was the genocide. And then we can stop, continue genocides of today's world. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, and I think this is uh, another thing that baffled me. And as I was watching the film, it was sort of in the back of my head. Now, as you know, last year, September 27th, uh, countries of Azerbaijan and Turkey orchestrated this genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing against Armenians of Artsakh, or also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, something that, for various reasons, uh, many nations and organizations and world political bodies, whether it's EU, Council of Europe, UN, etc., uh, there was no noise. There was no inter, you know, you know, intervention, if you will. Of course, President of uh, Turkey, Erdogan, is pals with Trump, and at the time, Trump administration uh, didn't do anything. They probably even greenlit the whole thing. And a lot of people look to the Pope to say something about it. And his silence, aside from just one time he said that he prays for the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is very generic, he was very quiet about it. And I know that a lot of activists... Uh, tried to get some sort of a statement, hoping that if he says something, something will change. And of course, 4,000 plus Armenians were massacred in 44 days. Um, Azerbaijan and Turkey brought in uh, Syrian, Libyan, Pakistani mercenaries and ISIS to do the killings. Why do you think, and I should include one more thing too. We later, and this is verified, it's, uh, it's not rumor hearsay, we later found out, which was probably about a couple of months ago, that uh, President of Azerbaijan, Aliyev, had made a 
unscheduled visit to the Vatican last February before the attack, and that he donated over $2 million for what they called uh, restorations to the Sistine Chapel. So people started thinking, is there a connection for Pope's silence about this? So I'm wondering what you think of that. First of all, I don't remember anything about TRIP because it's not was in any official things. I don't remember about that at all. I don't think it was uh, official. It was a kind of a surprise trip. Yeah, but any you can't make a, again. It's maybe speculations of the media as well, because I saw how different speculative uh, messages were posted on the media. Well, no, the, the just, picture they actually met. I verified it, and they actually took a photo too. So this isn't. Uh, media no, the, the picture, the pictures that I saw were related to a, the, his visit to Azerbaijan in the same year that he was traveling to Armenia, I think. And oh, no, no, no. I remember this is... that the pictures that I saw he circulated in the media were related to really, really past. No, no, That's no, I'm not talking about I... that at all. I'm talking about President and First Lady of Azerbaijan were, in, yes, were the at the picture... Vatican, were at the Vatican in February of last year. Again. The thing that, and I know Vatican really good, you can't have a meeting, and I learn Vatican really good. I can meet Pope of the protocol because I'm not political leader or not government official. Right. Since I saw how media able to state that Pope signed decree and Pope not have a clue about the document, I can easily believe that there is a speculation that not related to truth. It's possible. Again, I can't state this 100% because I can investigate this, but I do know this 100% assurance that if the official, government official, will come to Vatican under official trip or non-official trip, it's still treated only under protocol. It can't be off protocol. And it means he ate the meeting with number one, who is Pope, or he meets his number two, who is Secretary of State, Cardinal Parolin. Right. And in one occasion or another, it needs to be published. It's a diplomatic, yeah. it's kind of diplomatic thing. Like, for example, yesterday was a visit of a minister of something from Ukraine, and it is in the news, in the internal news of Vatican. Mm -hmm. You can't hide the fact that leader of one country will come. Vatican yeah. is... Very, very transparent in these days. Well, no, there was no, there was the... no reason to hide it. And and Azerbaijan's president going to the Vatican, there's no crime there. We're just saying that uh, no, the donation the, saying, and the silence. No, no, no. What I'm saying, if it was there, it's supposed to be an official Vatican channels. The this trip. That's number one. Number two, as the private person, he can donate the restoration of. Uh, Chapel, and it's not related to Francis. Francis uh, not related to 16 Chapel and restoration of the Vatican things, because I know how many people donating every year different types of the money grants to Vatican Library to, let's say, to... I'm not trying to defend, but I'm just trying still to divide media, mm -hmm. Vatican, and Pope. But Pope you do understand that there's, you do understand that, you know, technically, of course, people can donate to this and that, you know, but 
uh, we also know that those loopholes, and I'm not saying this is what happened, I'm just asking for your opinion, but people do use those kinds of loopholes to say, well, I'm a private citizen, and this is done as a benevolent humanitarian thing, this and that. But I guess ultimately, you know, we can't, we can't prove whether um, that was like a hush money or anything like that. But ultimately, I think the question becomes for the Pope to know what genocide is, and certainly knowing about the Armenian genocide, that this time around, why was, there, why was he quiet about it? I will tell you something. On the 15th of February, I was with Pope Francis. This year, actually. And when I was showing him a schedule of the release of the movie, and on my schedule was six panels, and panel number two was about Armenia, an Armenian genocide, mm-hmm. Pope was really excited and he said, it is important, it is important to bring attention. So mm-hmm. that's me and Pope Francis. And uh, I know that he cares about people. Yeah, that's why, you know, of course, I, I don't expect you to have all the answers. Uh, it's just as someone so close to him and someone that has a great view of this, I uh, was just wondering what your impression was of that. So, and I'm glad that you told me about your your last meeting with him and what he said. There's one thing I have to mention about the film. You know, there's so much, so many different things that I liked about it. One of the things that really stood out was the music. I thought the music was just beautiful. Um, Thank you. I, I, you know, I have to admit I didn't look up the composer. <laughs> So uh, before we go, I want to hear about the music and how you chose that and, and sort of the theme of it. I will tell you a very interesting story about the music as well. In 2019, when I was in Vatican, during the sexual abuse summit, I met a guy by name Emanuel Dramsky. He's another victim of sexual abuse from Chile who was sold as a child to German parents during the Pinochet. And this sweet kid being another victim of sexual abuse in Germany in the school where he was uh, studying. And Emmanuel is a really sweetheart. And he is literally, he opened his heart to me and he was playing violin during the event in front of the bishops and then talking about his pain and his reconciliation and what bishops need to do to fight the sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. And I offered him to perform all the parts of the violin in this movie for the, for the big world and bring the sounds that Adam Peters, a very famous composer created for this movie. And later in November, 2019, Emmanuel joined us here in the U.S., and we recorded on his violin. He was playing all the parts of uh, violin for the movie, for the score. Wow. So that's another voice of innocence and at the same time victim of sexual abuse in our movie. Yeah, it got to layer the film even more so. So uh, we're running out of time. Evgeny, um, so just for people tuning in, uh, the film is now available on Discovery. And Discovery Plus. Discovery Plus and in select theaters throughout uh, the country and the world, actually. 
Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything I missed? I think for all the questions that we were discussing and to see the real, you know what, it's not about words, it's about actions with Pope Francis. And I think for the audience to learn about him, to learn about his fascinating things, I, I suggest to everyone to go and watch it on Discovery+. Plus. And if people don't know how to find this, they can go to our website, which is francesco.movie or francesco.com. Oh, sorry, francesco.film or francesco.movie. And they can find everything on our film there. So it's again, francesco.film or francesco.movie. And they can find everything, where the movie plays, how they can watch it, and how they can learn about our initiatives. Fantastic. It's such an important film. It's a, uh, it's a must-see for all of us. We have to watch before we can have opinions. It's very poignant. It's very intimate. Um, and it's just beautiful. Thank you, Evgeny, for being on the show. And uh, I, I'm not going to say good luck to you or break a leg because you don't need it. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Vic. Thank you. That was filmmaker Evgeny Afinievsky, uh, of course, the director behind the new film about the Pope, uh, Francesco, a film that I enjoyed watching very much. It's entertaining, but it's also such a, an important film. Uh, Evgeny, thank you so much for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. I have three quotes today about the new voting law that was just passed in the state of Georgia. The first one is from President Biden. He said, The Georgia voting law, like so many others being pursued by Republicans in state houses across the country, is a blatant attack on the right to vote, the Constitution, and good conscience. It's Jim Crow in the 21st century, and it must end. The second quote, which is actually a tweet from President Obama, he said, let's be clear, this is a deliberate attempt to undermine our democracy by making it harder to vote. That's why passing the For the People Act is so important and why every one of us needs to keep up the fight. Our future depends on it. The last uh, tweet is from Senator Sanders. He said, let's be clear, the legislation passed in Georgia is voter suppression. The Senate must quickly take up the voting rights bill passed by the House of Representatives. If we are serious about calling ourselves a democracy, we must make it easier for people to vote, not harder. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit the Blunt Post with Vic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie. <laughs>